Presidential pardons are well noted. They, the most powerful man on the earth can remove criminal sentence. Never to have that individual tried for that same crime ever again. No double jeopardy. The most recent pardon was granted to Scooter Libby. Libby, you probably read about that, over the scandal of weapons of mass destruction from the Iraqi war. But in Christ, God has given all of us who know him an eternal pardon. God punished his son who took our sin upon himself at the cross. So when we entrust our lives to Christ as Lord and we are born again, God's wrath against us is satiated. It's satisfied. We can never be tried for the same crimes again in the court of heaven. All present today that have turned from their sin, repented, and placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone have received a full divine pardon from their sin. You cannot be tried for those sins ever again because Christ died. Your sentence of death, and it was a once for all punishment that he died for you because of your sins. And now you've all been eternally pardoned. God desires all in our time to be saved and to the, come to the knowledge of the truth, right? The Bible says from Jesus' own words, whosoever will may come. Whosoever we saw in chapter 10 shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Christ died for all, the just and the unjust. In our dispensation, there is no unpardonable sin. You cannot commit that sin in the church age. That was a reality for some of the Old Testament economy, but for men today, all are welcome to listen to and heed the invitation of God in Christ to be saved. We've been working our way through God's heart for the religious who are yet to be saved in Romans 9 through 11. It seems as we crescendo towards the end of this passage of Scripture, our longing for religious people to see Jesus as enough. Not Jesus and, not Jesus but, or Jesus or, but Jesus alone. It increases, doesn't it? The time we spend in prayer for them mounts and mounts and mounts. Please, Lord, let people that know a lot about Jesus but don't know him yet personally, let them be saved. Let them know your son. And I hope we're all praying that way. Uh, just yesterday, uh, last night at midnight, I got a text that woke me up. And it was a text from one of my son's buddies at school, one of their friends. And just wanted to let you know, I read it to my Sunday school class, Mr. Potter, that I know you've been praying for me and Kayla's been working with me. And tonight I trusted Christ as my savior. Amen. It's a great blessing. Been praying for this soul for about a year. So again, a religious person, a friend who grew up in church all of their life, knowing a lot about Jesus, but never, never having him change the way they lived, never owning him as Lord, right? We always say they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know him yet, right? The longest distance in the world to humankind, right, is the 15 inches between head and heart. It's not enough just to know about him. You've got to trust him as your Lord and Savior. But 
our burden mounts for people who grew up in religion that just, just, that wouldn't depend on what they know of him. We're told that many will pass right by Jesus having heard about him, having known much about him. And actually, in the text that we saw, not just heard and known, but actually knowing their own need for him. And yet they just keep walking right by him. And, and that breaks our hearts because we want them to know the joy and the, and, the, and the satisfaction that he brings to our lives. And they just won't do it. We've learned that while many religious say no to the one that they've heard and known much about, there are many irreligious souls that know and have heard very little, and yet they still come to Christ as their Lord and Savior. So, so while the religious stumble over much information, the unchurched irreligious seem to have an ability to grasp the simplicity of who Jesus Christ is, though they know very little. But it is clear through chapters 9 through 11 that God loves to help all men know the gospel that was previously outlined in chapters 1 through 8. The Lord has underpinned, the Lord has underpinned his longing to save people with all of his being, all of his person, with all of his nature, if you will, all of his attributes. We read earlier this longer portion of scripture and briefly explain to you some critical aspects of the text. We know who the religious and the irreligious are in the passage. We could see God's plan and desire to save both. We read how he supports his eternal plan to show all the world his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the rest of our time together this morning, let's consider some Particular attributes, if you will. Some attributes of God that influence religious men's hearts to consider turning from their sin and placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone. How does God throw himself behind his desire to save a religious soul? Recall, recall uh, we mentioned earlier, all that God is, he's chosen to take place before and behind, before the foundation of the world. And he's, cho he's chosen to throw himself behind his own efforts to save men. So when men look to Christ alone and are saved, it is God who has saved them and not themselves or any other man. No man here in our auditorium this morning would ever stand and say, I can save a, a person's soul. No man could do that. If you did, you would probably be encouraged to see a medical or a psychological professor, professional, right? Who in their right mind would stand up and say, I can save you from all your sin? Right? We call those people cult leaders. No one here would do that because only God can save. So since only God can save and irrevocably save, because he irrevocably saves according to his eternal plan, remember Ephesians 1, that when he saves, he throws all of himself behind that conversion. And so what's done is done. 
for all of eternity. And the grace that saves a person will then be the grace that helps them grow in Christ's likeness until they see their Savior face to face. So let's go back over these verses as we conclude our sermon this morning and see the heart of God for the religious and the irreligious in time. I trust your hearts will be warmed by the Lord's loving persistence shown to those who have yet to come to know him. We are going to highlight seven attributes of God that are obviously seen in the text. Some of you may see more than seven, but for our purposes today, we will use the biblical number of completion for our brief outline. And the first attribute of God I would like you to see in the text is his mercy, is his mercy. One author said that mercy comes to be seen as the quality in God that directs him to forge a relationship with people who absolutely do not deserve to be in a relationship with him. Mercy is manifested in God's activity on behalf of his people to free them from slavery. It is neither theory nor principle. In the most simple terms, as you've understood it from this pulpit, mercy is God withholding from mankind that which they deserve while doing all he can to begin a relationship with them. And we certainly see his mercy here in our context, didn't we? Look at the second half of verse 11. We'll read the whole verse. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the religious people jealous. Mercy saturates those lines. Think about that. God in his mercy tried to forge a relationship with religious people and they spurned him. But he even took their rejection of that mercy and allowed that mercy then to be extended to all mankind. He's now offering them something that they don't deserve. Go with me now to verse 23. Verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. The word mercy is never particularly used there, but those lines again are saturated with that attribute. Even the religious, which are cut off, as the Gentiles are grafted in, God still gives the opportunity for the religious to be grafted in again in this dispensation. There is no unpardonable sin. Religious people are always welcome to God only through Jesus Christ alone. Mercy. Look with me at verse 30, 31 and 32. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown what? Mercy. Because of their disobedience, so these also have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show what? Mercy upon all. In other words, if one person that's unsaved, doesn't need mercy, God really can't show mercy on anybody. The bottom line is all men 
need a demonstration of mercy from God, don't they? Because all men are sinners. They're all bound up in their sin. And so God's offer of mercy is to everybody. Is to everybody. Attribute number two, long-suffering. The word long-suffering in the Bible, this is uh, a few lines here taken from three different sources in study. The word long-suffering in the Bible is made up of two Greek words, meaning long and temper. Long and temper. Literally, long-tempered. To be long-suffering, then, is to have a self-restraint when one is stirred to anger. A long-suffering person does not immediately retaliate or punish. Rather, he has a a long fuse, one author said, if you will, and patiently forbears. And we kind of remember this in relationship to God in 2 Peter 3, 9, right? God is not willing that any should perish, but is long-suffering towards all men. There's that word, two words. Makra, long, all right, thumia, long-suffering with all people that all would come to repentance. God is long-suffering. Look at verse 14, the second part of verse 14, together. If somehow, verse 14, I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and still save some. I don't know if you remember this, but a few weeks ago, we traced God's long-suffering with his people back several millennia of time. God has been long-suffering with the Jewish nation for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. And he's still ready to save the religious. Look at verse 24. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, again, the... the, the long-suffering offer, the long-fused, the long-tempered offer. God is not quick to lower the boom. What did the psalmist say? Without forgiveness, none of us could even stand up. God's mercy for all of us is everlasting, isn't it? And it's new, the Bible says, every morning. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He will wait and wait and wait and wait. And even with a handful in the auditorium this morning, he's waited for you for decades of time, not to just know a lot about him up here, but to surrender your life to him here. He's still waiting. And he's shown himself good to you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it's actually the patience of God for you that should compel you to come to him. Lord, I can't believe you've been this patient with me. All I've done, and you're still ready to forgive me? Lord, that's not possible. Yeah, it is. And only he can do that. Look at verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, as I understand Scripture, we're in the church age. By the way, for those of you who are newer believers, that started in Acts chapter 2, just after Jesus' ascension. Okay? 
And that's the, the age of grace, we call it, or the church age. We're still in that. That ends when Jesus returns. All right? The Bible says his next time he's going to come, his feet aren't going to touch the earth. He's going to appear in clouds. Just like he went away in Acts 1, he's going to return the same way. And at that moment, he's going to take all those who came to Christ in this age, in the church age, to heaven with him. And everyone else is going to be remaining behind. And then for, se for seven years, right, he's going to give the religious and the irreligious another opportunity through many extreme circumstances to look to heaven, to understand that he's been long-suffering with them. And even at the end of that seven-year period, there's going to be introduced to all mankind a 1,000-year period of time, and there's still religious and irreligious people, right? We'll have the opportunity to understand the long-suffering of God and come to know Him as their Savior even still. So how long-suffering is God? Millennia of time in the past to the present, the church age now, He even tells us in His Word how He's going to be long-suffering with men Another, if Jesus came back today, another thousand seven years in advance, I'm still going to be patient. Right? Not quick-tempered. Aren't you glad you serve a God that's not quick-fused? <laughs> right? If you've yet to know Christ this morning, you're a living reality that God is not quick-tempered. And it's not too late for you. To know him. Impartiality. Mercy, long-suffering, and impartiality. This is the next attribute of God that is rarely discussed in Christendom, and it's unfortunate. God will judge the Jews and the Gentiles, not according to their appearance, one author said, or their circumstances, or their cultural or religious advantages or disadvantages, but according to something more intrinsic. This is something fundamental about God, and it's called his impartiality. God saves impartially. All are welcome. There is nothing special about Jews. There is nothing special about any religious person. And there's nothing special about irreligious Gentiles. We always say from this pulpit, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Who are they? Those who know Jesus and those who don't. That's what Paul's saying here. The text says it. Go back and cross-reference here, by the way, Romans 2, verses 11 to 16, where we're actually told, we've already studied this. You can read it on your own about the impartiality of God is not, not, is not partial when it comes to salvation. But we see the impartiality of God here explicitly expressed in verses 17 to 19. I'm not going to take time to read that again. You can do that on your own, but it's there. Before the New Testament, there are no instances of the word used here for partiality or a respecter of persons. In other words, the idea is here, even though the word's not used here, but even the word used back in Romans 2, 11 to 16 to, to underpin what's being said here in this context right, is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. The idea was there in the Old Testament for sure, a phrase in the Old Testament may have been used 
and did, was used, that God did not receive face. Uh, they would say, uh, he is impartial. He wasn't favorable to any particular face or person. He is not moved, an author said, by irrelevant external appearances. He sees through them and goes to the heart of the matter and is not partial to appearance and circumstance. Nobody breaks the rules and gets away with it. No matter how powerful or how clever or how wealthy or how networked or how religious you are, nobody breaks the rules and gets away with it. All are judged by the same measure. In the New Testament, this was so important to make clear that the writers took two words in the Old Testament, receive face, and combined them into a new verb that's found in James 2.9. It means to be a face receiver. A face receiver. Face receiving, if you will, in another text. There is no face receiving with God. He is no respecter of persons. All need to be saved. God is impartial when it comes to salvation. And so he's also impartial when it comes to judging those who reject Christ. He's impartial. God's grace is all over this passage for sure. Grace is, one author said, is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. I love that definition by B.B. Warfield. John Stott wouldn't agree with everything that he stood for, but he says that grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Jerry Bridges said grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. Another author said, grace is unconditional love towards a person who does not deserve it. We see this in verse 12, don't we? Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be powerful here? God's offer of mercy is the same as his offer for grace and vice versa. When religious people reject it, all will receive it. Again, all of us are in need of mercy and of grace. The first part of verse 15 is saturated with this reality of grace too. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, that idea that when religious people say no, irreligious people may say yes. Verse 22, it's there again. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's, what? Kindness. This is his grace. This is his grace. The justice of God is seen here. The justice of God. Justice is to give everyone what he's due. God's justice is the rectitude of his nature, an author said, whereby he is, he is carried to the doing of that which is righteous and equal. Justice is to give everyone his due. God's justice is the rectitude of his own nature, whereby he is carried, it's almost like he's self-propelled to carry out the doing of that which is right and that which is equal. We see that in verse 20. 
quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. They had their chance. But you stand firm in your faith. Don't be conceited. God is just. He's fair. He gives everyone the chance. And it grieves our heart when religious people breathe their last on this earth, having never bowed their knee to the love of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? But they had their chance. The second part of verse 22 speaks of the justice of God as well. I'll allow you to study that in your own time. The faithfulness of God here, is here. What is the faithfulness of God? It's God's ability to unalterably be consistent or constant to himself and his promises. God's ability to unalterably be constant to himself and his promises. It is the attribute of God which the psalmist declares in Psalm 40 and verse 10. And the greatness of which he affirms by saying that God's faithfulness reaches to the clouds. It is this which he makes the object of his praise in Psalm 89 verses 1 and 2. And which he says should be praised and reverenced by all men in Psalm 89 verses 5 and 8. And even this faithfulness in itself characterized by constancy, if we may so speak for the psalmist says that it endures to all generations, Psalm 100 and verse 5. The author goes on to say, being thus a characteristic of God, it is also characterized in salvation. It becomes the basis of confidence that God will hear prayer, Psalm 143.1. It thus becomes the security of the spiritual man in Psalm 91 and verse 4, and the source of God's help to his people in Psalm 131 and verse 5. God is faithful to save, and then faithful to sustain. We see that in verses 13 to 16 in this text. Verses 26 and 27 that we've already mentioned, he's faithful to the remnant to cause them to persevere. And remnants of faith throughout this dispensation into the next and into the next. God is faithful. God is immutable. God is unchanging in his character, will, and covenant promises. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Jesus says, I am that I am. I am the same yesterday, today, forever. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Often associated with his faithfulness is his immutability. He never changes. Often associated with all of his attributes is his immutability. He's faithful to himself. He's constant to himself. In a relationship, in, in relationship to this context, his gracious offer to save men and women and children is constant. It's irrevocable. It's unchangeable. But for you, it's temporal because you will only live so long. God's offer to save religious and irreligious people transcends the time that you're going to live on this earth. 
So you've got a responsibility. If you live the average age of a human being, which is 72 in Northeast Ohio, probably because we have two great hospitals in our area, right? We'll say three. Two well-known hospitals and a third good one, right? So 72 years, you have an opportunity to take advantage of a transdispensational offer that God's made to men to be saved. And that's it's unchanging offer. It's an unchanging offer. He's just waiting for you to come. For all of us that have come and understood the simplicity of joy in Jesus Christ alone, salvation in Him alone, I think sometimes we grow weary in well-doing when it comes to our religious friends and family who have yet to come. And so when you grow weary in well-doing, as you wait for religious friends and family to come, just remember and solace your heart with the reminder of these attributes of God in this text. And ask the Lord to be God-like. We cannot be the fullness of his attributes, we know that. But my friends, every attribute that we mentioned were not attributes of his greatness, but attributes of his goodness. For those of you that have been saved a long time, you know exactly where I'm going with this final application. Every attribute of God mentioned here, in part, we can express to religious people who have yet to be saved. Because those are the ones we often grow most impatient with. Let's keep praying. Let's keep praying. Three this month. And I'm confident the Lord has many more in the days and months to come. Let's pray together.